Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of Tech Swamp. We have an exciting new addition to your host roster and membership team here today. Please welcome to the podcast, Brad Simonich, our new membership manager. Hey, Brad. Hey, how's it going, everyone? It's pretty great. Caitlin, how about you? You know, just membership chilling. Membership chilling. And of course, this is Alex. Um, So today is an all things AppCon episode. We're sitting down with friend of the pod and senior director for public affairs, Graham Dufault, for an overview on our top issues at AppCon this year. We're talking privacy, broadband infrastructure, and more, but not too much more. Uh, But first we're gonna hit tech history and run through some DC headlines. April 4th, 1973, 46 years ago this month marks the first ever cell phone call. Made by American engineer Martin Cooper on the streets of New York City, Martin led the team at Motorola that developed the first handheld cellular mobile phone and is considered the father of the cell phone. Fun fact, the phone used to make the first call didn't make it to market for another 10 years. And that's all for tech history. That sound means it's time for What's Brewing in DC. Caitlin and Brad, what are some of the top tech headlines? You guys, I know I said this on the last two episodes of Tech Swamp, but Facebook is at it again. It's more of the same shady privacy practices and data sharing issues. Uh, So Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg oversaw plans that essentially tried to control competitors by treating users' data like a bargaining chip. Leaked company documents, including emails, spreadsheets, and presentations show how those at the top of the chain at Facebook dangled user data in front of other companies that they were partnered with. Facebook even went as far to reward favored companies by giving them access to data and punishing rival companies by denying them access to that same data. It's worth mentioning also that Facebook is under fire for saving login information of millions of Instagram users in plain text documents, as well as an additional 1.5 million Facebook users as of midweek last week. This latest drama follows several security incidents, as well as a U.S. criminal investigation related to Facebook's abuse of user data. Last week, the long-standing legal battle between Qualcomm and Apple was finally settled, ending litigation between the two companies. While we welcome the new licensing agreement between the two companies, we urge the FTC and USPTO to continue fighting for licensing on friendly terms. The Apple v. Qualcomm litigation has always been a distraction from the core of Qualcomm's anti-competitive business model and the vast impact it has on companies both large and small throughout the economy. For more information on all things Apple v. Qualcomm, including our official statement and links to our latest content on FRAND issues, head to our show notes. The Department of Homeland Security aims to roll out their biometric exit plan by 2023. What is that exactly? Well, a representative from Customs and Border Protection, which is also part of DHS, said that this plan aims to use facial recognition on 97% of departing air passengers in an effort to identify travelers who overstay their visas or are using travel documents that have been altered or or do not belong to them. Privacy advocates have raised concerns around facial recognition technology, particularly when the government is involved. For more information on the biometric exit plan, head over to our show notes. The Government Accountability Office, otherwise known as GAO, plans on spending $15 million in the next year in an effort to build tech literacy on Capitol Hill. Officials will expand the Science and Technology Assessment and Analytics group staff from 49 to 70 full-time employees by the end of the year, whose responsibility will be to inform policy decision makers on issues like 5G, privacy, and exploring the applications of AI in healthcare. AI in healthcare? (laughs) That sounds familiar. (laughs) 
As if we have an entire episode of Tech Swamp devoted to just that topic. You know, that does sound about right. Alex, I think that might be episode 14? I think it might be 14. Okay. (laughs) Interesting. Anyways, before we head into our policy discussion, Special Counsel Robert Mueller released the 448-page report surrounding the president's involvement with Russia. This follows the final report released last month that, quote, did not conclude that the president committed a crime and also did not exonerate him. And that's all for What's Brewing. Today we're sitting down with friend of the pod and senior director of public affairs, Graham Default, for a rundown on some of the top policy areas we'll be covering at AppCon 2019. Hey, Graham, thanks for joining us. Hey, Thanks for having me. Welcome back. It's been a minute. Yeah, it has. Yeah. yeah nice to be back. It's nice to have you back on the swamp. Yeah. In the swamp. In the, the swamp. swamp. Yeah. In the Waiting swamp. in the swamp. No <laughs> sirens in the background for once. Yeah. It's kind of yeah. nice. Well, knock on wood. <laughs> Traffic is quiet for a minute. I mean, now that you've said it, yeah. you're going to fix it. <laughs> no, yeah. We're going to get a few motorcades. Or... Knock on wood. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I want to dive in um, on what we're going to be talking about at AppCon, but just to sort of give sort of the, the like refresher course on what AppCon really is. Um, it's an annual fly-in. Um, we do it every spring. And it's really an opportunity for our members to come into town um, for a few days. Um, they come here to the nation's capital, um, and we we do networking, we do some learning about issues, and then we literally storm the hill. Um, I say literally because last year there was, in fact, a storm mm-hmm. while we were on the hill. Mm-hmm. Um, and we sort of set folks up uh, with congressional offices, committees, and things like that to really be able to talk about the sort of some of the top issues uh, for tech small businesses um, and give them an opportunity to tell their story and talk about the issues sort of as they relate to their business rather than, you know, us, the act staff, just kind of talking about them in general terms. Um, and so this year we're going to be talking um, broad brand infrastructure. We're talking privacy. We're talking where it act, which Graham will talk more about in a minute. Um, and we're also talking computer science education because always computer science education and workforce development. Um, so Graham, one of the first things I want to say is that some of these issues may sound perhaps familiar uh, to some of our members. Why is it that sometimes there's a repeat of issues? Sure. Um, Well, we did get a bunch of stuff done, actually, over the last year or so, year and a half. Um, And that was because of the efforts of our member companies. Uh, It's because of kind of the work that we put in as a staff throughout the year. Um, But some of these issues come back, not because we're rehashing them, but because there still remains a little bit to be done. So, for example, on the TV white spaces issue that some of our member companies will recognize this, um, it has to do with deploying broadband to to rural areas in a cost-effective way using otherwise vacant spectrum in the TV band. We were able to get an order adopted by the Federal Communications Commission a month ago that set forth a bunch of the rules that we needed them to set forth in order for that spectrum to be used for broadband purposes. Um, That was a huge win for us. But there still remains a little bit to be done. So this month, uh, when we go to the Hill and when we go to the Federal Communications Commission, we're going to be asking them to finalize a couple additional items uh, dealing with, in particular, uh, Channel 37, which is just one channel that's set aside that isn't being used for broadcast TV. It isn't being used for uh, wireless Internet uh, on on a licensed basis. And so it should be able to be used for TV white spaces. They just have to clear up a couple more things. So that's part of the reason we have some familiarity with, with TV white spaces, for, for, for one. Um, and then, well, 
you, many of you uh, listening to the podcast will remember the Cloud <laughs> Act. Um, oh, the Cloud Act. Ah, the Cloud Act, which used to be ICPA, and then it was uh, something else um, that I can't remember. Wasn't it ECPA? ICPA, then ECPA? Or was it ECPA, then ICPA? So, well, it was... It, Too many so, letters. ICPA, <laughs> <laughs> um, it amended ECPA, because that's the underlying right, right, right. Okay. laws, the uh, uh, Electronic Communications Privacy Act, which caused all the problems in the first place because it was written in 1986 and it didn't deal with cloud computing, especially when email. you're talking about right? <laughs> yeah. Smart <laughs> um, Big problem. So <laughs> the, the Cloud Act did pass last last March and was enacted into law, and that cleared up a bunch of the ambiguity with what happens when you store data abroad. You're a U.S. company, you have customers abroad, uh, and you might be using a, a data center that's that's located not in the U.S. So what happens? Uh, who has jurisdiction if there's like a law enforcement investigation or if there's like a civil investigation going on? Uh, so that cleared up a lot of ambiguity. Ambiguity. It has to do with privacy because it deals with when and how the government can get access right. to data. Um, and so we're returning to the privacy issue, but in this case, we're talking about consumer privacy. That is, what happens when a company takes your data? What are they allowed to do with it, and how can you? How can the uh, company go about setting forth the terms and creating a creating a choice mechanism for you uh, as you're dealing with that company, and then like the downstream companies that may or may not be using the data later on. You and know, this is all privacy issues. And and we're seeing this conversation happen in a lot of different forums, right? Because obviously we saw it happen in the EU with GDPR and yeah, now we're yeah. sort of, you know, Congress is looking at it, but also the states are looking at it. The states are too. California enacted uh, the California Consumer Privacy Act. That was um, last year that it passed and so it won't go into effect until January 1st, 2020. But it sets forth a bunch of requirements on companies uh, for when, when they can or can't share personal data with third parties. And so that is a set of requirements that hasn't really existed in US law yet. Right. So it's it's a it's a big event for this law to go into effect. Um, and to take a quick step back, so right now yeah. in the US we have sector specific privacy laws but not like a general privacy law, right? More or less. We have we have HIPAA which governs, you know, healthcare data um, and that depends on if you're a HIPAA covered entity basically. Uh, and so even if there's healthcare information uh, out there in, in the ecosystem and it's not being handled by a HIPAA-covered HIPAA entity, then it's under this kind of general privacy law, which is the Federal Trade Commission Act, which was never enacted to be a privacy law, but the right. FTC, you know, um, I think they've done a pretty good job of turning the FTC Act into a privacy law. All the FTC Act does is a prohibits unfair or deceptive acts or practices. Mm -hmm. And then there are a couple of more specific things. There's also a um, Child Online Privacy Protection Act, which deals with data on children 13 and under. Yep. Um, and there's a set of rules uh, that the FTC has promulgated and that we tried to make workable for a number of reasons. It's been really difficult uh, to uh, to make it work for companies and, and for consumers and make it make the whole system work. but. In any case, yeah, there there is a general kind of privacy sort of vacuum in a lot of people's minds, and 
Um, you mentioned the the European law, the General Data Protection Regul. There's the siren. <laughs> <Man>. Found it. <coughs> found it. It's, they found it's us. It's been like at least five minutes without a siren. <laughs> so the uh, <coughs> General Data Protection Regulation, because it's a European law, right? But it it applies to any company that happens to process data on a European data subject. So that's somebody who's European. So it's a it has global reach. It, it applies because it's based company. on the consumer and where the consumer basically is a citizen more essentially or less. yeah essentially is residency or citizenship yeah um and that makes you a european data subject and gives you all these rights uh that you can exercise against the company that is processing your data um so because of that the gdpr which went into effect last may california consumer privacy act which is sort of patterned off of some of GDPR. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are a bunch of state bills that are out there that have a decent chance of passing. Mm -hmm. Because of that, Congress has, uh, I guess, new momentum behind it to work on a privacy bill that would set a single national you know, set of rules mm -hmm. for privacy. Uh, so privacy is one of the issues we'll be talking about, partially because of GDPR, California Consumer Privacy Act, and then the series of state bills. Uh, we really think that Congress might actually get something done in this area. The chances are slim just because there are so many different types of mm -hmm. uh, stakeholders in different walks of the industry that will be at the table and want different things mm -hmm. on this privacy bill. Uh, there are consumer privacy groups mm -hmm. on it. So there's, there's a lot of people at the table, a lot of cooks in the kitchen. So I, I know that we um, should talk about some of the other issues, but real quick. Yeah. So like for us, what, what, um, what are like, what's like the key thing that we want to see f from our perspective in, in sort of what that bill might end up looking like? In, in a privacy bill, I think one of the main things that we really need out of the bill is that it should set just a single set of requirements nationally. Mm -hmm. the, the, I think the risk that we run uh, here in the U.S. of not doing that is that the California Consumer Privacy Act is out there and it's going into effect. And then Washington State has a bill that's moving through the legislature, might or might not be dead, mm -hmm. might be enacted. Then you have Massachusetts, then you have New York, then you have um, and there Nevada. And 50 states. <laughs> there are 50 so like states. in theory, <clears throat> that's 50 individual bills that you would have to worry about. As a small business, As you small would have business. to comply with 50 different... And they don't... They, these state legislators do not uh, coordinate with each other. Right. right. They, you know, and in some cases, state legislatures will adopt, like, model pieces of legislation. Mm -hmm. We're not seeing that happen with privacy. Interesting. So they're not really necessarily on the same page. And in many cases, these, bil these bills and then eventually laws mm -hmm. could conflict completely. Yeah. And then there's not much you can do. Right. You would tr have to try to comply with, with both all of them. them. Yeah. All of them. Um, and so that's uh, that's why we want to see out of this piece of legislation a, you know, a clause in there. It's called preemption. Mm -hmm. That would preempt state laws so that it would it adopt a single national framework. Um, there are a few things that we can, I, I think that we can see in, in a federal privacy framework that are, are workable, you know, there are some ways that you can require companies to respond to requests for, for example, for a person's data about that, about themselves, mm -hmm. uh, requests to edit, requests to rec rectify like 
uh, incorrect information. Mm -hmm. uh, so long as you balance that against like a legitimate business purpose for not responding to the request or uh, denying requests where you know, for example, that it's not the person that they're claiming to be right. or uh, denying requests that you know have to be generated by like a competitor or something like I can definitely see situations where a competitor would just generate all these requests and just you know bury companies under GDPR I feel like the, the balancing act isn't done so well yeah. but it could be done better mm -hmm. uh, in US law um, the other thing is it's got any requirements have to be scalable right so that so that you know for a big complex enterprise um, you know uh, they ought to be able to uh, put together you know, reasonably complex privacy controls mm -hmm. that account for the sensitivity of the data. If, if you're a small enterprise that's doing something really simple, um, it doesn't need to be this big complex uh, compliance regime. Mm -hmm. um, and scalability, we think, is a better alternative than just having a carve out for small businesses, yeah. which, you know, California, you know, the California Consumer Privacy Act tries to do this, where it'll set a, you know, it'll set a ceiling of 100,000 people uh, you know, if you're collecting information, personal data on 100,000 people or more, uh, then, then the law applies to you. If you have less than that, it doesn't apply to you. And so that's kind of an incentive to stay, either stay small mm -hmm. or uh, suddenly you have to ramp up and start complying the mm -hmm. minute you get to 101,000. Right. Um, so it could put small businesses at quite a disadvantage. It definitely could. Yeah. Uh, you know, as you're trying to grow, um, you don't want to suddenly have to comply A and B. You don't want, you want to be able to compete, and our member companies can compete with bigger companies. Yeah, absolutely. And so long as everybody's under the same set of rules and they're sort of scalable, and you're taking care of data that is happens to be really sensitive, for right, example. Right. Right. Um, okay, so I'm sure we're going to talk about privacy again because your privacy and all of that. Um, every year is the year of privacy. Every year is the year of privacy. <laughs> um, yeah, right. We even talked about it in news because Facebook. Um, but I want yeah, yeah. to um, go back. So you mentioned TV white spaces earlier, and yeah. that's sort of part of what we're talking about when we're talking about broadband infrastructure. Um, what else are we going to be talking about sort of under that umbrella? Sure. Um, so TV white spaces has to do with being able to connect people that currently don't have just the basic broadband 25 megabits per second, three three uh, download, three megabits per second upload. Um, that's kind of like the, the the basement speed that okay. you, that defines broadband by the under the FCC's definition, anyways. So the other part of it is being able to upgrade networks to 5G. Okay. And so there is a couple of public policy issues there. Uh, right now, at the local level, at the state level, all the rules around whether or not you can build infrastructure are designed to accommodate 4G infrastructure. 4G infrastructure is really big. It's it's 300 foot towers. Uh, it's really big pieces of equipment that you need a crane to bring up to the top of the tower. Mm -hmm. um, here with 5G, in order to get those speeds and and uh, which are going to be like 70 times, 75 times uh, faster than 4G in many cases. You're, it's going to require a lot more infrastructure, but really small pieces of it. So about suitcase suitcase sized uh, pieces of equipment that you can put on like the lamp post. Uh, so it's fundamentally different. So the rules are going to have to be uh, slightly altered in order to ensure that uh, you know companies that are deploying these smaller pieces of equipment can do it quickly um, and uh, respect the rights of way of, of localities. So there has to be a little bit of a balance there to make sure that local governments have the incentives mm -hmm. and requirements in place to more quickly approve uh, equipment, um, not sit on requests, and then not like 
take the uh, the opportunity to overly tax these um, these activities because that's going to slow it down. Right. Um, and so what we're going to be able to do is talk about you know what is 5G going to enable, um, and why why is it important to ensure that the the deployment of it happens quickly. Uh, and so and the ask of Congress is just to ensure that. Uh, it is supportive of our goal of making making that deployment happen quickly and, mm -hmm. and more seamlessly. Um, and the idea is that, yeah. like, for IO, the Internet of Things, so to speak, to, like, continue mm, to move yeah. at the pace at which it's moving, like, we need these sort of faster right. networks. and, and it's, it's not just to stream <laughs> cat videos. Right. You know, there's actual things that we care about. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, oh, right, yeah. Game of Thrones, yeah. but also, you know smart cities and self-driving cars yeah. and and sort of all of these all the connected devices all that the we connected have devices that we have and, and yeah um there's gonna be a lot more it the the growth rate is is pretty staggering i think there's already almost 30 billion uh iot devices out there it's gonna grow to a lot more than that that's so, so many yeah um so you need a, a better network in order to handle all that traffic absolutely and to provide the higher speeds that these things are going to be um, speaking of connected devices, yeah. I feel like this is a great segue to the Wear Act. The Wear Act. Tell us about the Wear Act because this is this is uh, this is Wait. our <clears throat> this is our bill. This yeah, is our we, bill. we drafted the Wear Act. Um, it's the <laughs> <laughs> Wearable Equipment Adoption and Reinforcement and Investment in Technology Act. The Wear Act. That's what it stands for. For those who are. Uh, it's great. Curious. It's a great acronym. For those who love acronyms. You did well. Oh, and I do. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's unhealthy. Um, <laughs> so the Wear It Act would update the law, basically, dealing with healthcare expenditures uh, out of a flex spending account. So a flex spending account and a health savings account that really similar uh, types of accounts that are tax advantaged. In other words, you can take pre-tax money out of your out of your paycheck, put it into a flex spending account. And then you can spend it on certain things. Uh, medical expenses is, is the statutory you know, definition. And then the IRS has interpreted the statute to mean a couple of different things. The only problem is the last time the IRS updated it was a, was a while ago. Every year they come out with, an, with it's called Publication 502, where they give you a list of items that, are, that uh, you can buy with a flex spending account okay. and that are tax advantaged. What are some of those um, items? So it's <laughs> things like... It, it's interesting because it's things from sunscreen to neck pillows, um, but also like glucose monitors. And so uh, the IRS has tried to kind of keep up with, with newer technologies, but what they haven't done is they haven't included things, uh, items that do a couple of different things at once. Ah, interesting. So you can, whereas you could, you could use a flex spending account to, to buy an EKG monitor, which is really, you know, it can be a very expensive item. Uh, what you can't use it for is a wearable device that has an EKG monitor built in, but it also does things like steps or and uh, blood oximetry mm. and other physiological parameters, right? Um, or sleep, for example. Um, is there so, a reason for that, or is it just sort of this statutory sort it, of limitation? It is. It is. Um, it is a limitation, and it's you know uh, reading the statute you would think that it would actually cover things like a wearable device that do a, that that does a couple of different things mm -hmm. um but the irs just hasn't uh just hasn't included it it just it has I interpreted it so what we want to do is with this bill clarify 
uh, and not necessarily expand the mm -hmm. definition of medical expenses, but just clarify that it does include a device that has an EKG monitor, a device that tracks sleep, a device that tracks uh, uh, fitness variables like um, VO2 max and um, and blood oximetry and uh, things like that. Heart rate. That's great. I'm excited for the Wear It Act. It should be it should be a fun uh, item to 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 advocate behind. Uh, members of Congress have there. It hasn't been introduced in Congress yet. Mm -hmm. Right now, it's just a draft bill that we've been shopping around. There are a bunch of members on the Ways and Means Committee, which is the committee of jurisdiction that would that would be forwarding the bill if okay. if it uh, if we're lucky enough to get it to move um, that have expressed interest. So there are few of them are interested. What we want to do is kind of swarm the hill and uh, get the word out uh, and you know make sure that there are other members that would be interested in this kind of a bill uh, to help you know uh, people live healthier lives. It's not just uh, the treatment aspect of it. You know. For, for the EKG monitor, it, it might be, you know, somebody has, um, knows they have a heart issue mm -hmm. and the doctor, you know, wants them to, to put on the wearable so that they can track EKG and make sure that they don't have AFib, right. uh, which is asymptomatic. You, there's no, somebody would have no idea you'd have it unless and until you take an EKG reading, for example. So that that's one sort of uh, somebody who's already a patient and, and treatment, but it's also for prevention. Yeah. And there are studies that show um, that uh, patients or not patients uh, consumers uh, that are part of a wellness plan that 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 use wear, uh, wearable items and that track their steps and track their physical activity uh, save two hundred twenty-two dollars a year per person in medical expenditures. So a wellness plan that includes the use of a wearable uh, can make, you know, can can save money, can save the person, but also the insurance and the federal government ultimately mm -hmm. uh, money. Um, I say the federal government because many of us end up on Medicare um, and a little bit of prevention goes a long way, even years and years down the road. Absolutely. And there's a big shift right now towards preventative sort of value-based medicine rather than quantity-based medicine, which is interesting. And we've talked about it on past yeah. tech swamps and, and things like that. But it's yep. this sort of also feeds into that sort of trend towards that kind of practice as well. It, it definitely, yeah, it definitely does. Even the federal government is starting to move to value-based care yeah. in that. Um, this helps yeah. a lot. That's great. Um, and then, you know, we did mention that we're going to talk about computer science education and workforce development. We talk about it every year. I know that there's yeah. a bill that we're going to be talking about this year as well. Right. Uh, so it's the Chance and Tech Act, which is another acronym. Uh, this bill would actually incentivize um, sort of third parties that help you manage uh, your participation as a small business in an apprenticeship program. So there are official apprenticeship programs and what defines it is we pay you know we the small business pay an apprentice a little bit less than minimum wage but we certify with the department of labor that that person is getting really valuable experience and will end up with a great job um, at the end of the apprenticeship right so but managing this sort of program and your participation in the program can be kind of paperwork intensive and really difficult. So the Chance in Tech Act. Wait, there's paperwork in government? <laughs> what? what? Oh my god. The tape is red. Yes. Crazy. The tape is red. The tape is red. Yes, it's not good. Um, <laughs> so you so that has given rise to these little 
you know, third-party groups that come in and help small businesses because you don't want just big companies right. doing apprenticeship programs. Right. You want small businesses to have access to them as well. So that's where the Chance of Tech Act comes in is it um, helps these third parties start up and helps uh, certify these third parties and ensure that they can uh, exist and, and do their jobs and, and help small companies participate in the program. That's awesome. Um, it's going to be an exciting, jam-packed I'm con this year. I'm ready to go. Me too. Yep. Yeah. Got some Can't cool wait. issues. Yeah. Good, good discussions down the <laughs> down the road. Um, looking oh, forward yeah. to it. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's gonna be awesome. Cool. Yeah. Well, Everyone's thanks. gonna be membership chilling. Yeah. That'll <laughs> <laughs> be great. <laughs> Graham, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Yeah, this is fun. And now it's time for our random identifier. Brad, since you're new to the pod, you're up first. What do you have for us? All right, so just a little bit of background. I have been playing guitar for around 12 years now, and I just want to say how much it grinds my gears <laughs> that John Mayer is not appreciated as a guitar player. He is absolutely phenomenal. Um, Do you think that he's appreciated for like other things or like the wrong things or just not appreciated enough for guitar playing. So I think because he's mostly a pop star okay. and wrote a lot of kind of kitschy tunes, I guess, that a lot of people kind of see him that way. <laughs> but the way that he puts blues guitar playing into pop music is incredibly impressive. And you think about he's played with some of the best instrumentalists in the entire world in right. The Grateful Dead, Eric Clapton. I mean, he's guested with everyone, mm -hmm. including... Dave Chappelle. Yeah, that's right. Controlled Danger. Yep. I think that's more comedy than music, though. Listen, music is music. Fair enough. But yeah, so it, it really bothers me. And he's probably top five alive in my personal opinion. Not, not that that's the end-all be-all, but... I like that. I like that you came into Random Identifier 2 with something that really grinds your gears. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really, really yeah. bothers me. <laughs> um, and there's also, like, an office-wide sort of agreement that John Mayer is sort of, like, interesting and great, and everybody sort of has some sort of personal connection well not like actual personal connection but just sort of like everybody feels connected to john mayer in some way good people at act yeah that's what i have to say yeah no i get it um i like it that's a good one um caitlin what are what are you here to talk to us about today i'm here to talk to you today about the incarceration yes of the situation i am very excited <laughs> about this um so obviously i love like trash television um and I was a fan of Jersey Shore. Still am. Not ashamed. I mean, we all were. Right. Agreed. Um, and, you know, the situation from the Jersey Shore has been incarcerated. Um, he did some, like, tax evasion, white collar, whatever crime. Just like one of those celeb crimes. Yeah, just like NBD, yeah. I'm a criminal and a celebrity. Classic. Yeah. Celebrities. They're just like us. Yeah. <laughs> Criminals. <laughs> um, so he is in the same prison as... Billy McFarland, the fire. fire festival scammer, um, and they have become friends. This which is my new favorite piece of information that has ever existed. <laughs> it's just, it's actually, oh look, the sirens are coming. They, they heard us talking about the situation in Billy, and they're like, we're coming. Um, so I googled Billy McFarland because I wasn't sure if his last name was McFarlane or McFarland, so I googled mm -hmm. it. Totally. And underneath his name, like, when you google it, his descriptor is fraudster. Yes. Which I think is really, really yes. funny. Instead of, like, celebrity. It's fraudster. fraudster. He is a celeb because... 
he is a fraudster. Yeah, he became a celebrity because he's a scammer and a fraudster. What right before Random Identifier and I was looking up the information of the situation in Billy. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason that we know this information is because the situation uses an app to communicate with DJ Polly D and Vinny from the Jersey Shore. So there's already like a from jail. jail app. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. Billy in the situation, if you are listening and you're interested, um, please don't contact us. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I want to talk about a book. It's called Daisy Jones and the Six. Um, I am trying to get everyone in the office to read it because I loved it so much. It's really, I've never really read a novel quite like this because the idea is that it is in fact a novel, um, but it's sort of told the way like an oral history might be told. Um, so like, please kill me is oral history of punk. It's told in that same sort of style where like each person who was sort of a part of it all, um, gives kind of their, uh, assessment side of the story sort of thing. Um, and it's kind of told without like the questions that were asked so it becomes a narrative um and it's really really great the characters are like really fascinating like you you it's about a band and you like want to hear all of the music that they talk about making um and you like wish that you got to go to the tour this is all fictional too but you're like man i wish i was there um it's it's really good alex had me read it i devoured it in 24 hours the the playlist while reading the book, just enhance the experience even more. And this is one that, like, someone just, like, made for the, the book, publisher right? made Oh, it. the publisher yeah, made it. Yeah, well, So it's it just... Uh, amazing. Yeah. It's a really great book. Everyone should read it. Daisy Jones and Six. Reese Taylor, Witherspoon. Also... Who's the author? Taylor something? Taylor something. I should know this. Jenkins. Reese. Taylor Jenkins. That's exactly yes. what her name is. Yes. Uh, Reese Witherspoon also recommended it. Um, it's like part of her book club because now she has her own book club. Mm-hmm. Uh, her and Oprah killing the game. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's really, really good. Like she's gonna make it a show. Yeah, and she bought. She like has the rights to it now, and she's gonna turn it into a show. So I'm sure at some point we're gonna be talking about the casting for that show when they start announcing it because we have opinions. We do. Um, but I'll leave it at that because I don't want to spoil anything. <laughs> okay, guys, that's it for Tech Swamp. If you heard anything on here that piqued your interest, head over to our website and make your way to the podcast section. We'll have notes on today's episode that include links to all the good stuff. And of course, we want to give a shout out to Brad Goodall, who composed the podcast Awesome Music. Thank you, Brad. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. And of course, we'd love a rate and review. Five stars, please. Yes, please. Uh, That's all for today, folks. Everyone say bye. Bye. Bye.